Amen. 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 Well, children, you are now dismissed. If you would like to turn to the person next to you, welcome them to church. If you're online, we welcome you as well. Hug your family. Say hello. Uh, there is uh, few things that are better than gathering together as a body of believers, where we get to open up the scriptures together, the Word of God. Uh, what a privilege that we have, and what a privilege I have to, to preach the Word of God to such a wonderful congregation. Well, let us pray, and we will turn our hearts to hear what the Lord has for us this morning. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you have given us an instruction manual, that you have given us the ability to see how we are to live our lives, but you did not leave us to do this on our own. You have given us the Holy Spirit, that we can be empowered, that we can understand the Word of God, that we can live the Word of God in our lives. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we open up our minds and our hearts to your word, that it won't just be for information, but it will be for transformation. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen, amen. Well, it's been a great morning for me, so uh, I'm probably going to be a little bit more energetic, which many of you might think, how is that possible? I just, I love the word of God, and it is so fun to, uh, to be here with you. Well, I don't know how many of you are 80s children, some of you are, are 50s children, 60s children, but in the 80s when I was growing up, there was this amazing shoe called Reebok Pumps. How many of you guys remember Reebok Pumps, right? I mean, Reebok Pumps were the, the NBA's most important shoe of the year. The Reebok pumps were, you know, really expensive, but really, really cool. If you went to school with Reebok pumps, people looked at you like, whoa. I don't care what else you got on, you are cool. Because you are wearing Reebok pumps. Well, I grew up as a pastor's kid, which means my family could not afford the $135 Reebok pumps. So, knowing that I wanted the Reebok pumps to go to Bellwood Annis. Uh, elementary school, my mom decided she was going to go to Ames. Ames does not sell Reebok pumps. Ames doesn't even exist anymore because they didn't sell Reebok pumps. But Ames had these things, these shoes, these things called Franklin pumps. And they had a basketball on the tongue that said Franklin. Didn't say Reebok. And if you know anything about Franklin pumps and Ames or Reebok pumps, Reebok pumps, you'd pump them up and the tongue of the shoe would tighten on your foot so that you had this wonderful basketball shoe that would never fall off when you run. But there was also this beautiful thing called a release button. So you would hit the release button so you could take your shoe off. Well, Franklin pumps had a basketball, but no release button. Which means 
It didn't pump up your tongue on your shoe. It was a horrible knockoff, and I wore them to school for maybe a week and got teased because they're Franklin pumps from Ames, so I never wore them again. Why do I share that story? Well, I think it is one of those natural stories of understanding that there are just things that do not measure up to the real thing. Franklin pumps never matched the Reebok pumps. And there are things in our lives that we apply, that we worship, that we spend time on, that would be idols eventually because we just spend so much time with them. And those idols that are in our lives are like Franklin pumps compared to Jesus. See what I did there? Those idols, they can never measure up to the real deal that is Jesus Christ. But often we tend to put these idols on the thrones of our hearts, sometimes not realizing it, sometimes on purpose, but these idols begin to displace the importance of Christ in our life, and they always bring devastation, like Franklin pumps to my popularity. The reality is, is we must get rid of our idols. And the enemy loves to use idolatry and immorality to derail our lives. In fact, idolatry and immorality are the great influential enemies that Satan uses in the church. If you were to look at statistics of Christian men and women who have fallen in their relationship with Christ, or you see these pastors or elders or leaders in churches, one of the main reasons why they step down or are disqualified from ministry is because of sexual immorality. Immorality and idolatry are Satan's influential idols and problems in the Christian life and in the church. These two enemies have derailed countless believers and wrecked many churches. So we're talking about this issue of idolatry. The title of today's sermon is this, Keeping Christ King. So the question would be, from the story of this church in Thyatira, how can we keep Christ King of our hearts? If there are all of these things, all of these items, all of these sins that are seeking to displace Christ as King on the throne of our hearts, how can we keep Christ King? And I believe that this story, this truth from the, the, the letter to the Thyatirans gives us the answer to that. So if you'd open up your scriptures to Revelation 2, 12 through 17. Revelation 2, 12 through 17. The word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality 
and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have, uh, what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Always with these passages, these churches, we have to begin with a little bit of context to understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying to these specific churches. It's interesting that Thyatira, although commercially and size-wise, is the least important city that we'll see in these seven churches, it has the longest message to them. The city in Thyatira was a commercial city. They had many different areas of commerce. They were the way to Pergamum from Ephesus. They were a pass-through type of city, but they had their own importance. As people were passing through, they would buy their wares from these commerce men and women. They had great commerce. But inside this commerce were guilds. And the guilds were these, these groups of people who would gather together for a specific job. Like there would be the guilds of steel, right? The guilds of wood, these different types of guilds. They were gathering together as a group of men to lead this specific type of commercial, commercial um, job. And in these guilds, they would have their patron gods. They would have the gods that they would worship to give them favor and financial blessing. And similar to the Masons in the 80s and still a little bit today, if you were part of these guilds, worshiped their gods, spent time in their, their types of ceremonies that they would do, and you would sign your name upon this guild, you would have financial security. You could get a job. You could get promotions. But similar to the Masons, there is compromise in their faith to Jesus Christ in order to be a part of these specific guilds. Now, one of the gods was named Apollo, and he was known as the son of God or the son of Zeus. And Zeus was also an important figure to these guilds in Thyatira. It's important to understand this because what was transpiring with this Jezebel and what was happening within the church in Thyatira was compromise. Compromise was happening because they needed financial stability because without these guilds, they would not maybe have jobs. They would not maybe get promoted. They would not be making the amount of money that they could make if they were a part of these guilds. So there was 
compromise that was growing. And there was a belief in Apollo, the son of God. And so Jesus, as he approaches this letter to this church, gives specific realities of who he is to speak against what's happening in this city. And he does this with every church in every city. I believe John gives us five keys in order to keep Christ king in our hearts. Jesus, through this letter written by John, gives us five keys. And the first key is the key of kingship. Jesus is the king, and he alone deserves the throne of our hearts. Jesus is the king, and he alone deserves the throne of our hearts. He says very specifically, the words of the Son of God. And so he automatically attacks this worship of Apollo and says, I am king. Apollo is not. I am the true son of God. And this is one of the only places in Scripture that he calls himself the son of God because it was a very specific attack against the belief of Apollo, who was known as the son of God. This is important because he's saying you might be tempted to worship this son of God you might be willing to bow down or, you know, partake in some of the meals and compromise some of your beliefs to this Son of God. But I tell you, I, Jesus Christ, am the Son of God. Apollo is powerless compared to my power. Apollo is meaningless compared to my meaning. Apollo is short-lived while I am eternal. No one else worships Apollo these days, do they? They look at that and say, wow, I feel really bad for those people who believed in those gods because they did nothing for them. They have fallen out of worship. Jesus, however, has not. Jesus is still worshipped. He is the king. These images speak directly to what was going on in the city with these people. These idols, these gods were replacing slowly Christ from his throne. And he reminds them, I am king. Now, he also uses some other words in this to describe himself, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He is hearkening back to Daniel. So there is an eschatological value to what he is saying, which is the theology of end times, where we look at what is going to happen in the end. That is the entirety of the book of Revelation. There's no other book that is all eschatology. Daniel, however, has very specific eschatology. Osborne explains this, who is a commentator, and he does it much better than I ever can. He says, eyes like a raging fire, feet like polished bronze, are taken from the initial vision of Revelation 1, 14 through 15, where they allude to Daniel 10, 6. Yet, they also have special relevance to Thyatira especially the polished bronze, which refers to one of the major guilds of the town, the Bronze Guild. As stated in Revelation 1, 14 through 15, the eyes like a raging fire portray the penetrating insight and judgment of Jesus. Jesus has penetrating insight into our lives. Jesus knows what's going on within our hearts and within our minds. The world only sees how we act. Christ knows everything about us. And here he is saying, I see what's going on. I look at the mind 
and I look at the heart, and I know all things. And so he goes after this bronze guild by saying the bronze guild is not as important as I am. Do not compromise by putting this idol of your financial well-being on my throne. Because there is no idol we can hide in the closet of our hearts that Jesus does not see. We have to be discerning and ask the Lord, what have I had in my life that has begun or has replaced you on the throne of my heart? What idols am I worshiping? Is it money? Is it power? Is it sex? Is it this sense of needing to be pushed forward in my job? Is it the, the importance of following just the news, where I spend more time being discipled by the news than I am the Word of God? Because that can be one of those tempting things. Because the news is important for us to pay attention to. It's vital for us to understand what's happening in our culture so that we have a proper way of defending the Word of God. But there can be this slow creep where something becomes more important than the Word of God. Then we have an idol. Then something replaces God as the most important thing. And Jesus is saying, I am the most important thing. Look at where your idols are and get them off the throne. The second key is the key of spiritual growth. We are to continually pursue love, faith, service, and patient endurance to grow. Now, Thyatira, he begins with a sentence of commendation. He says, you guys are loving. You are doing great works. You are serving. Many of you are doing what is required of you. They had the exact opposite problem of the church in Ephesus. They had love for one another in their church. They were serving God. Many of them were. Many of them did not bow down to this teaching of Jezebel, but some did. And so he encourages them to continue in their work of love, to continue in their work of service, to continue in their work of faith and patient endurance. Because they were experiencing trials and tribulations. Those who were not going after these guilds and the financial gain that came with them, they were sacrificing many things for the name of Jesus. It was not easy to live in a city that was built on commercial guilds. And if you weren't a part of them, you were probably poor. And they sacrificed this for the Lord. And so we are encouraged to continue to follow in love, to follow in service, to keep faith a priority, and to endure when we suffer for Jesus' name. He encourages them with how they've done that and encourages them by also saying, not only have you endured and followed in love and service and faith, but the works you're doing now are better than the ones you did in the beginning. And there was a woman named Lydia who was a, a commercial uh, cloth lady, if you want to say that, I don't know, the Guild of Cloth, but she began her own purple clothing type of job. She wasn't a part of the guilds. She was serving the Lord by doing the work, and she found financial favor with the Lord, and she was able to use that for the goodness and the glory of the church. 
She was an important aspect of helping Paul get the church off the ground. Lydia was used by God, but she rejected the guilds and found blessing, not just this idea of financial, which we'll talk about, but this issue of authority to, to speak the name of Jesus in this city. So there were people who were doing good things, and the latter works were better than the beginning, and so we are to continue in our spiritual growth. He wants them to understand these are things you need to continue in your life. But the problem that they had was that they were beginning to have loving compromise. Love without truth is powerless. Truth without love is meaningless. And so we recognize the necessity of both things. Both things. The third key is the key of rejection. We are to reject any teacher and teaching that is not in line with Scripture. We are to reject any teacher and teaching that is not in line with Scripture. So this is important for us to remember that we must know Scripture in order to reject false teaching that goes against Scripture. Sadly, as I've mentioned before, we live in a very biblically illiterate time. Even believers do not spend time in the Word of God. They don't know enough to know what is against Scripture and what is not against Scripture. They don't spend enough time with the real thing. They're being discipled by other things rather than the Scripture itself. And so we need to know Scripture in order to refute that which would come against Scripture. And so here in the city of Thyatira, we see a woman who is named Jezebel. That's not her real name. But she has rose to power, and she is leading men astray from the truth of Scripture. One of her main issues that she's bringing is the issue of immorality. She is talking about grace that allows us to be sexually promiscuous. In fact, she was so sexually immoral that she was saying, hey, elders of the church, have sex with me. And they were doing it. Some of them were. And just like Jezebel in the Old Testament, she led Ahab astray through sexual immorality. She used her body and her way and her wiles to take Ahab away. She was supposed to be married and was married to another person, and Ahab was as well, but she utilized all of that to bring him into a place of sin. And that immorality led to Ahab accepting idolatry within the whole of Israel. Baal was beginning to be worshipped. Jezebel in the Old Testament had orders to kill the prophets of the Lord. Jezebel was an evil, evil woman. And this woman to be named Jezebel within the church would bring about all of the imagery of the woman Jezebel in the Old Testament. She was manipulating men sexually and getting them to compromise little by little and leading them towards false idols. And Christ says, I know this. She must be dethroned. Her words are not in line with Scripture. This Jezebel, she was leading people astray 
and saying that she was speaking for God, that God had given her a new revelation, that these things are permissible, that these things should be allowed, that it's okay to compromise sexually. It's okay to compromise financially in order to get ahead. She was manipulating this and putting herself on the same level as the apostles. She would say, I am speaking for God. Later, Christ would say that these things that she's saying are the deep things of God are actually the deep things of Satan. Wow, that's pretty intense. But we saw last week when it comes to Pergamum and the idea of compromise, that small compromises with the idols today always lead to larger compromises tomorrow. The second issue that Jezebel was preaching, not just immorality, but this, this giving into idolatry. She was saying to the church, it is okay for you to join these guilds. And it's okay for you to party with these guild masters. It's okay for you to eat the food that is sacrificed to the idols before you as worship. It's okay to compromise with this thing. God doesn't want you to be poor. God doesn't want you to not have influence. God does not want you to struggle financially. And they believed it. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Why would a good God ask me to sacrifice my financial stability to take care of my family? Well, we're called to take care of our family. Why would he ask me to compromise or to, to release the financial security? So there was an attractiveness to what Jezebel was bringing Osborne says many Christians compromise their walk with Christ to enhance their profits or to keep their jobs. Osborne and Barclay have a theory that this is actually the beginning of the prosperity gospel that we now see in our own day and age. That the key was that God will bless you financially whether you compromise or not. As long as you, you know, claim it and you name it and you go after it, you will have financial security. And God will bless you with, you know, a BMW and all these things. In our world today, the prosperity gospel is a little bit more palatable than what Jezebel said, but it's no less demonstrative to the church. It's no less destructive to what we believe. Because the essential reality of the prosperity gospel is that if you do right with God, He will bless you financially. Whatever you ask for in His name, whether it's a BMW or a mansion, you will get. And if you don't get it, that means you are a sinful, sinful being. And God won't bless you. The same is with the idea of health, not just wealth in the prosperity gospel. That says if you name it, you will definitely be healed. And if you're not healed, God doesn't love you for what you're doing because you're not doing things right. This is a very toxic type of gospel. It's a little bit more palatable than what Jezebel was doing because Jezebel was using her body and her wiles to distract and to lead people away. Today, we'd say, that's wrong. And we say, well, how can this transpire? 
How can we allow this type of thing to happen? We do in our own churches today. Barclay says, Jezebel is counted among those to whom claims of commercial success speak louder than the claims of Christ. Are we willing to compromise, put idols in our lives, sexual immorality in our lives, not be convinced and convicted of our sins? Are we, allow, are we willing ourselves to be compromised with idols on our hearts? This, this language that's being used sometimes can be difficult for us to understand. And Osborne, he brings a lot of clarity to the specific words that are being utilized in this passage. He said, there the church had false teachers among them. Here they tolerate, which is Aphaeus, the leader, Jezebel. The verb, aphiemi, is a context like this means allow, permit, or tolerate. It may well connote support as well as tolerance and the very, at the very least an unwillingness to take an active stand against this horrible teaching. So essentially, Christ is speaking to the leaders of the church and saying, yes, there are many of you who are not engaging in this teaching. There are many of you who are not going after compromise for the sake of financial gain. There are many of you in the church who are doing good works, who love, but you are willingly allowing this to happen. You are not standing up to what you need to stand up against within the church. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.12 is very specific about how it is our job to see what, what the enemy is doing within the church and seek to lovingly cleanse it with truth, spirit and truth together. Often we focus so much out there that we miss the, <laughs> the implications of false teaching or slow compromise within the church in America. It's important that we pay attention to what is being taught. Paul encouraged the Bereans as he preached. Paul, Apostle Paul, was preaching to the Bereans, and they were opening, opening up their Bible to make sure that Paul was not speaking anything against Scripture. And he says, yes, anytime anyone preaches, open up the Word of God, check it, just look at it. Is there anything wrong against Scripture that is being taught? And if there is, lovingly bring the truth. Call them out. Because truth is vital. And love is vital. Together they must go together. Now here's the thing we say, well, how could this be accepted? There's this sin that's in the church. The leaders are, are in clear violation of what the Lord is saying. That, that can't happen the same degree today. Let me tell you, it has. The fallenness of sexual immorality that is in churches like Hillsong that let it go for too long. The toxic environment that a domineering wealth kind of guy named Mark Driscoll in Mars Hill, where he would pursue the church to spend money to get his book on the number one selling list of New York Times. They allowed it to happen. Well, he's so gifted. He's so good. Like, our church is 7,000 people. God's using him. We can't, we can't take him out of the pulpit. Seriously? 
We see the same in the Southern Baptist Convention. All of these things that transpired. They discovered all of these pastors who were molesting children, having sex with people within their congregation, and they didn't do anything about it. They moved them from one church to the next, trying to hide it. You can read the news on these things. We have the same issue, but different idols. We need to read the scripture. We need to call it out. We need to live in truth. Wearsby says, speaking the truth in love is the biblical balance. Ephesians 4.15, unloving orthodoxy and loving compromise are both hateful to God. Because truth and love must be married together in order for us to live a mature Christian life. Truth and love. If we have no love but we have truth, we're just big, meanie jerks. If we have no love without truth, we're just compromising fools. They must go together. So we must love one another, but we also need to know the truth. The fourth key is the way of repentance. Repentance comes up a lot. Repentance is a releasing of our false idols and replanting of Christ on the throne. We must replant Christ on the throne of our hearts, put him back, no longer compromising. Jezebel was leading the church into compromise, but he even says, Christ even says, that I called Jezebel to repent. I called her to repentance. But she liked the power. She liked the limelight. She liked the distraction that she was enough to refuse to repent. And she was leading more of these children of Jezebel away. And Christ had very, very strong language for Jezebel and the unrepentant followers. And he would say they'd be so destroyed in what they were doing that this would be an example to other churches. Because she and they were leading Christ's children astray. Anyone who leads the church astray will be judged supremely harshly by God. That should wake us up a little bit as leaders in the church, as, as congregants in a church, as members of a church. This is important stuff. We must repent. Repentance is vital. Repentance is needed. Here's the reality of her message. It was a message of comfort and not conviction. How often do we prefer comfort over conviction? It was a compromising gospel. It was a gospel of ease and comfort financially. And, and we weren't being ma made fun of or blocked from commerce. So, of course, that's what God wants for you. But the Christian life is not about comfort, but rather conviction confession, challenge, and life change. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we live into the beauty of the gospel, when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead, you and I, we are changed men and women. We're convicted of our own sin. We're called to repent and confess of our sin and turn to Him and put Him on the throne of our hearts. But I think in the Western world, 
we've become all too comfortable with the ease of life and have slowly allowed idols to usurp Christ on the throne of our hearts. The fifth key, then, is the key of endurance. Great gifts await those who don't give in. Great gifts await those who don't give in. Pastor, didn't you just say that we're not supposed to expect these, these gifts or this great blessing? Yeah, because we manipulate what that blessing looks like, and we try to define with the prosperity gospel what that type of blessing looks like. But that blessing that the Lord brings to those who don't give in is a blessing that the Lord wants to give. And in the end, the greatest blessing is that we have the morning star. What is the morning star? Who is the morning star? Jesus himself. And the greatest blessing is not health or wealth on this planet. The greatest blessing that you and I can ever have from the blessing of endurance is Jesus Christ himself we've got to claim it we've got to know it that that's the truth that is what brings us great blessing in life it is not the material things it is not the even the people that we live with or the church that we attend although those can be blessings it is Christ himself and the question we must ask then as we look at Christ on the throne of our hearts is Jesus enough? Is he enough? Is he enough? We're called to endure the pressures of Satan's lies, the compromise that seeks to leak into our hearts and into our churches. We're called to stand up against it, to know the scripture, to be able to refute that which is not from the Lord. And we do this by clinging to Christ and asking, as Acts 1.8 says, for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, for the purpose of good works, which means to go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're not just saved from something, we're saved to something. May we refuse to give in to an easier gospel. May we be people who cling to Christ and are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and walk in both love and truth in order to keep Christ on the throne of our hearts. Let us not compromise. Let us not seek comfort over conviction. And then we'll see the greatness of who the Lord is in our lives. He will be king on our throne of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. I thank you for the scripture. I thank you for the passion that you have for your sons and daughters, the passion that you have for your bride, the church. May we be people of love and truth. May we allow you to bring conviction. May we not seek compromise or comfort, but may we seek your face. May we cling to the cross, knowing that that is the only way we can endure in your holy and precious name. Amen.